That's the boldest move I ever seen <laughs> in my life. Like, I never just dude walked in and took a lawnmower out of Sears and was like, going on, man. Cause I was like the secret weapon. I was the gooch. They would come, <laughs> they would call me down. Like, oh, these all these dudes funny. Wait till say it come. Yeah, I mean, Steve Harvey, look at what he do for people. So you're talking about he like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> in a colorful suit. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there are some people that can just walk in the room and crack me up, and Cedric the Entertainer is one of them. And I'm not the only one that thinks that, because this is one of the busiest guys in television. He's currently starring in and executive producing The Neighborhood, which just got renewed again. And he is really a fun guy to be around. You've seen him. He's been in The Soul Man, The Steve Harvey Show, The Kings of Comedy, The Proud Family which earned him the NAACP Image Award. And he's about as regular a guy as you would ever want to meet. He came up just like the rest of us, working hard and putting it together. Nobody gave him a damn thing. And he's going to tell you how he became Cedric the Entertainer and what has made him who he is. And listen, I'm going to stop talking about him so we can start talking to him. You're going to really like this guy. Here we go. Tell me this. I got to know, because I find this absolutely fascinating. I talked to Steve Harvey about this. You know, he and I are really good friends. You and I both come from not Hollywood. We both come from the middle part of the country. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, think you'd be doing this? You know, like as a young as a young guy, you don't because, like again, I grew, I grew up in St. Louis, and you would only see people on television, and right. you always assumed that they were, uh, you know, of course, uh, these these rare people that somehow you don't you don't even think of them of being from other places. Right. Like when you would see people on television, you only assume they were Hollywood stars yeah. and that no nobody Born ever came right. <laughs> like nobody ever came from some other place. And so you never really identify with it until, you know, like, you know, starting around for me, like in the um early eighties, uh, you started to see um like for me it was the this comedian, the late Robin Harris, and he was he was from uh, Chicago, and right. I knew that. And he and he delivered like um, he delivered like somebody that you knew his his personality. His it was more like an uncle, like a cousin. And that's when I identify with. Oh, I can actually do that. Like yeah. you know, because it was it wasn't about being like a big star already. So, uh, but you know, you know, you you know, you know, you, you like like most kids. I thought I was gonna get a job. I went to college. You know, graduated. And I did. I did all those things. Worked for State Farm, had a corporate job, you know, want to go up the corporate ladder. And that was, you would think that would be life. So how good were you at State Farm? I was not very good. <laughs> well, you said you were making 40. You were going to go to 50 they were the next about year. To go to, they were going to take me to 60. And oh, really? I was a young dude, man. Like, yeah. getting ready about make $60,000. And I had to make that choice, like, uh, you know, like, because I started doing comedy literally at the same time. So I, I kind of got the job at State Farm. And, you know, and after, after like, going through a whole bunch of other little small jobs, you finally land this, you know, this kind of job. You feel like, okay, I can, you know, this will be it for me. And then... Uh, you know, but my personality was one that's what that's what people wanted to be around. It wasn't really that I was a good claims adjuster. I I would always have stacks of files and 
Because <laughs> I, I, I did comedy at night, so I'd come yeah. to work just dragging, man, you know. Yeah, you didn't get home till like 1 o'clock, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like, and then I'm supposed to be at work at 9, I'm dragging in, I'm like... I'm not calling people back. I'm letting people keep rental cars for months at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was some people's favorite because they, they'd rather had a rental car than their own car. So they like, yo, man, let me, let me, get, <laughs> let me keep this car one more week. And then I started noticing people would try to use me to get cars for prom time. Like, you know, like for their kids, they would have these little small accidents and go, like, hey, man, I need to get a rental car. You know, and say, oh, you trying to send your kid to prom off the insurance company. Got it. It's okay with you, right? Yeah. yeah what the I, was hell? The, I, was the, I was their best friend. Can you imagine having ever stayed in that job? Nah, nah, I can't now. You know, of course, and I don't think so. I don't think I probably ever would have really stayed. I had, I always had a kind of an ambitious mindset when uh, my sister and my mother used to say I was always scheming up a dream. So always trying to come up with something, you know, uh, invent something, uh, write something. I was always selling sunglasses at the, at the flea market. Like anything that was like a hustle, I was like, I was trying to figure it out, man. Well, let's talk about that a minute, because you were voted most popular and most humorous in school, but you said comedy wasn't your focus. No, you know, I, you know, I think uh, because because my mother was a school teacher in the district where I went, it was one of those things where, you know, I had to like stay on the education. Never really wanted to, you know, draw any attention to myself in that way. So I was funny in the lunchroom. I was a I was a popular kid, but you know when you go, you know the, what they call the dozens, or uh, we used to call it joning. I don't know where that come from in, in St. Louis. You joning? Wow, you joning? So you know, so so uh, we would, you know, and I was like the I was like the secret weapon. I was the gooch. They would come. They would call me down. Like oh, these all these dudes funny. Wait till say it come. And then they, <laughs> So I start getting messages saying, "Say, come to second lunch, man. They down there talking, talking trash." I'm like, "All right, now just come in, boom, boom, just jokes, you know." So you were just doing improv right there at lunch. Yeah, just kind of like you know, looking at people's outfits and talking to them. You know, the whole thing where you look at someone and just kind of rip off their whole little, you know. <laughs> swag or if you know something that happened to them you know remember dude fell down some steps you oh yeah you just run in 10 minutes on him not being able to walk you know so that kind of stuff so uh were you a good student i was a i was a decent student you know that's what i would say i didn't really get focused i got focused my last two years of high school because my friends were athletes and they were going, to, they started, They came in one day, uh, like in the junior year, and they were all wearing ties, and they were, and uh, I was looking around like, what's going on? They was like, oh, we about to go on college trips. I was like, what? Y'all going to college? <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't know, I thought we was all playing around, yeah. goofing off. He was like, yeah, man, you know, they, but they were all like, you know, student athletes, and I didn't, I didn't play sports in high school, so... Um, so that's when I realized, oh, I need to get my grades together and kind of get focused so I can go to school. And you did, right? Yeah, I did. And I got, you know, and so I became, you know, a fairly good student on, you know, my junior, senior year. I actually thought I was going to go to school for law. Like, uh, you know, my, uh, I was, you know, a good orator um, and I was, I liked history enough. And so my advisor kind of uh, advised me that he thought that that would be, you know, kind of the tools I could use for um, law, you know. And so 
Um, and, you know, and I loved law shows, any kind of law thing. So I thought that would have been a cool thing for me to be a lawyer. Yeah. So you went to Southeast Missouri State? Yeah. Where's that? That's in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So that's about uh, 130 miles south of St. Louis. Okay. And then Southwest Missouri State's in Springfield. Springfield, yeah. Yeah. So Southeast and Southwest. Yeah. Okay. And those are the big schools. South and Southeast always had a, like a good basketball program, and they and they so they stay they stay in the um, you know they kind of stay in the national attention. People are always surprised uh, that you know you 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 know you can hear about that show. We it became famous you know later on because Rush Limbaugh's from there, so you know everybody started knowing about uh, Cape Girardeau for that reason. Yeah. So when you got out of college. At some point, you had to make a commitment that you were going to do this comedy for real because you got to be willing to be hungry. You got to be willing to take any gig you can get anywhere, anytime. When did you decide to do that? You know, I was, um, it was once, once I really discovered I can do it. Like I can make people laugh and, and, you know, I was working. It was this, you know, it was that hustle, like, again, like trying to figure out how to go on stage every night as much as possible. And then um, I think it was around 89, I met I met a guy. He lived in the same condo complex as my mother, and he was the manager at the at the comedy club. And he and he he's the one who told me if I took it serious. And I passed a couple of these tests that they would do. He would put me on their big circuit. That was the one where um, the Funny Bone had 22 clubs. Right. You can do the 44 dates. And so, uh, and if you if you get, if you, you know, it was 22 clubs. And if you book it, you can go to each club twice a year. So it was 44 dates. So that's when I knew it, would, it wouldn't be the same as $60,000. But it was that choice. Like, do I take this job? Or do I take this opportunity and know if I can get, earn this, then I at least have a base salary, and that—that's when I took and start taking it serious. So, what kind of test? What do you mean a test? Well, you know, you got to go up, you got to perform at different nights, you got to perform when it's not necessarily what they consider your audience. So, yeah. you know, and then they—they they watch you. Of course, back then you couldn't have any. Um, uh, vulgar language, so you had to have clean sets. That was like customary back in those days, and so and then you had to be able to do time. They kind of each they kind of time you out, you know, because in uh, and, and thirty minutes was the amount of time, and that's when you're a young comedian. It's a long time. Oh my god, you're panicking up there trying to do thirty minutes. So thirty minutes. That's that's how I got the name the entertainer because I was I was sing, I would do poems. <laughs> those people that knew how to do those paintings you know where yeah. you talk like I just put a painting up on the wall and then hey so tell me about yourself and just like I, anything I could do to entertain you for that 30 minutes was my move and, wow. that, and that's how I got the name so did you get the 44 I did I got yeah. the 44 and uh and you know and that was really kind of fortunate too because the timing worked out that that was in the early 90s uh, right uh and that the 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 African American comedy scene really started to pop around then and so uh, before I even finished those 44 dates I actually went to Dallas and ran into Steve Harvey Right. Uh, we had knew each other only by name. You know, he was a he was already a stand up legend for young stand ups because uh, he was like one of the top 
touring uh, comics out. I, I had never met him, but then I heard him on the radio. So I was in Dallas to do one of my 44 dates, and I was on the radio. And what happened was I got to Dallas, and the club was hadn't got had got bought out by an individual and was no longer working under the corporate system. So they told me they have their own opening act and they won't need me and sorry. And and we for you know, sorry you drove all the way to Dallas for ten hours, but Bullshit. I was like, so I'm like, so I'm not gonna get none of the money? Like nothing. Like no 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 condo. You don't get to live at the condo for the week or nothing. So um, you know, that's when you, you know, back, you just get super resourceful, man. So I knew a girl from my, uh, my church. She, she had an apartment, we stayed over there. And then I heard Steve on the radio and then I went, he was doing his own comedy night and I went by and just kind of stood around and, and just so happens that the guy that was the headliner was not doing well. And, uh, Steve said, yeah, I heard about you. This guy, this guy is stinking up the room. Do you mind going up afterwards? And I said, of course. And I went up and I killed. And so then he said, well, just come back every night if you can. And if this if he does that, I'm going to put you up and I'm going to put some money in your pocket. And that's what he did. And so uh, he gave me 200 bucks to get back home. And then he booked me to be a headliner uh, a few months later. Uh, where I got paid a thousand dollars, Doctor Phil. That's money, right? What? That's serious money. What? A hotel room, a Southwest airline flight. Flight. I could, boy, Steve Harvey, man. Come on, man. I cry when I think about it. Yeah, I mean, Steve Harvey. Look at what he do for people. So you're talking about he like Jesus? Yeah, <laughs> in a colorful suit. This was a game changer. It was because, you know, I was on that on that tour, and at, at the time, that tour was you you start as an opener act, and you make three hundred dollars for the week or three fifty, and then you try to move up. It was slots. Yeah. You move up to the middle where you make six fifty, and then you move up to the headliner where you make fifteen hundred or a thousand. And so once Steve kind of qualified me as this headlining act, I was able to go around in the country and get other shows like that. Like he would put the word out and then the club in Atlanta would call, hey man, come to our club. And you know, and then a club in Houston would call, hey, come to our club. And so next thing you know, I was moving around in the country as a, you know, one of the top acts in the country. Now you're breaking a thousand bucks. Yeah. For how many shows? You do seven to eight shows. So you start like you you start on a Thursday night, usually one, two on Friday, two Saturday, and then one Sunday. And it's just depending. Some some clubs wouldn't do Thursday nights, so you just come in, you do two Friday. And so, how long were you up? Forty five minutes. So forty five minutes to an hour. So yeah. By then you had a set. Yeah, built, but right? I had built it up. I I I built up my just because I had to do it for to to get ready for the thirty minutes set. I'd build up all this extra. So, so now you're not juggling and yeah, you well, actually I got a set. That was still, if necessary, if ever I ran it to a wall, I'd pull the old juggles out. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by this. What's your philosophy with hecklers? You know. Do you get them much? I, I, not anymore. I'm not, but, you know, you, you will run into them. I'm not a big fan of, 
You know, like like say when I first started, you know, in, in the lunchroom, that was kind of it. You know, you do the you do the you know what they call the Jonin or the dozens, and so you would you would handle a heckler like that. But when you when I once I kind of became a professional, I really liked the idea of people coming to see me and sit down and relax and let me do my show. And, you know, so this idea that somehow you think you're funnier than I am and that you have the right to just interject inside my show uh, became a, a something I, I wasn't really a fan of. So but I still had a couple of little quick get backs. But after I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, go back and forth with people for, you know, more than three or four times and then be like, all right, that's enough for you, man. How'd you get rid of them? I mean, you know, I had a, I had one or two good ones that would like just shut it down, yeah. and then you know, and then my and then my one of my final ones I always would say, "Look, dude, I got one word for you if you keep talking." Security, and then, <laughs> so then security would go and take them out, and, you know, and that would be it, you know. But I definitely had like one time in Memphis. I got into it with a guy, and we, I had to fight this dude. Like, he he came down to the front of the stage, and he was talking all this trash, and he, and he said he'll smack my glasses off my face. And I was like, <laughs> well, do it. And then I jumped off the stage. It was crazy. And that was the only time that I've ever had that it go that far, you know, where it was just like over, over the top. So how does the crowd respond when something like that happens? I mean, <sighs> You know, people, people, they love a good car accident, man. You know, they want to look over. When it's not them, they want to look, and they like all that now. So people get pretty hyped in those situations unless, again, you're ha- you're having a good show and they feel like the person is disruptive yeah. and they're stopping you. And, and that's the thing about it. Most hecklers are coming from a, a drunken stupor and have no idea that they're even being rude. They're just yelling out stuff, and they think that what they're saying is funny. And, and But, you know, if the crowd doesn't like it, then they will boo them and let them know they're the ones. Get out of here. So, yeah, they'll give them hell. Yeah, exactly. So when you work with Steve Harvey, what's it like to work with him? What's it like to be on a show with him? I know you did the Kings of Comedy, yeah. but before that, what was it like to be on the stage with him? You know, that was the thing. We had an instant connection. Uh, you know, like I said, he used to have um, uh, several comedy clubs in Dallas area. And so he after, after bringing me down that first time, he would bring me back quite a bit. And then um, we just started to have this camaraderie we would sit around we can we can hear one subject matter and both of us just spin off of it and just keep adding to the joke adding to the joke and that's what uh, ends up being I thought was one of our uh, great chemistry for us that also transferred onto the TV show the Steve Harvey uh, sitcom and so um, that's that that's really where we we started to gel we had this kind of natural you know two-man show that can happen like almost Abbott and Costello-ish or yeah. you know Smothers Brothers like people uh, look at all the kids they gotta google these people they have no, all the kids Dr. Yeah. Phil right now going to who yeah. Smothers. The Smothers Brothers. Yeah, Who's that? Who? You talking about the Migos? No. <laughs> like, no. But, yeah, but the two-man comedy was a, you know, that used to be a big thing. And so, oh, yeah. But I remember one of the most famous, uh, one of the famous nights Steve used to have this thing because he was like the host and the MC of his club and he would bring you down to be the headliner. 
But and then he had this. He's very long winded. Like as you as you know, if you start getting Steve to tell a story, he'll tell it. Oh yeah, and he's a great storyteller. But so he would go back on stage. So after you headline, he would go back on stage as the MC and may do another hour of yeah. just talking. And I, I remember one night I said, "Oh no." No, I said, because that was my audience. Like, I just went up, I killed. You supposed to go up and say goodnight, and they supposed to be thinking about me when they leave. Yeah. And they're not going to be thinking about you. So he was on stage talking. I walked back on stage. So we went back. He's like, what you doing up here? I said, man, you're not going to take my audience. And so we went back and forth. We started talking. I got a mic. Next thing you know, it was 3 in the morning, we're still on stage, and we end up doing this this joke where we it was one of the famous where we we did two roaches on a wall, and so they had turned out all the lights at the club, and then they turned the lights on, and then we both just froze and started talking. About, Man, what happened? You know, it was just and it was this whole joke where we just like uh, you know became these two uh, roaches if it was in the middle of the night when you come in the kitchen, and so it was hilarious. Yeah, he is a big fan of yours, I can tell yeah. you for sure. It was 2000 when you guys did the Kings of Comedy. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, and that was that was a really great time because, you know, uh, no one had actually done, again, a kind of like mega comedy show where it was a lot of big names all on one show. Uh, it was other people that were doing arenas, but not at that time, like in in that fashion. And so, and then Steve and I were doing the uh, Steve Harvey comedy, the the sitcom. And so then we would go out and tour on this show, and it was, I mean, that was great, man. That was that was that was good, great times. How many people were in the arena that night? Oh, the first time we did it, yeah. I think the first time we did it was eleven thousand. We did it in Dallas, and right. it was like about eleven thousand. And then it just it kept growing after that. I mean, I mean, eventually, I think Kevin Hart just recently broke a record of ours, but we had forty two five went in in the Georgia Dome. Yeah, I think the Georgia Dome was over forty. Yeah, yeah, it was like forty two five in the Georgia Dome, and and then I think and Kevin Hart just recently did like a hundred thousand. Or some crazy number. Yeah, that's wild. Huh? Yeah, so, but doing stand-up, you know, like, the that's the hard thing. Without music, without a band, you know, without these necessarily with um, songs that, of your childhood that you can, or, or relationships that you can hum along, this is jokes. I've been just really wanting to ask you this. You know, I've watched it so many times, but when you walked out in the Georgia Dome and you're, silhouetted there you're getting ready you walk out and there's over 40,000 people out there going absolutely nuts when you come on the stage take me through that moment I mean you know people often ask you do you get butterflies or do you still get nervous and in those kind of moments it's just, you know, it's right there at the, at the beginning of it. You do. You feel that anxiety. You you understand that somebody else had just killed on stage. So, you know, somebody else had just performed, killed it. All their jokes worked. The crowd loved it. And now you're worried about if any any joke you've ever written is going to work. Yeah. Like, now you just get inside your head like, oh, man. So, you know, you just have to kind of, you know, for me, it was always to try to relax and know where I want to start and kind of know where I want to end. And then everything in the middle I can, you know, I can move around. But if I know, like, the joke I want to start with, that usually helps you bring the, 
you know, the butterflies or the anxiety down. Like, as soon as you get that first laugh, you're like, all right, cool. So I always picked good songs, too. I like, yeah. my, my move was to pick a song that everybody like, ah, that's a jam. I'm like, it's not on me. Yeah. If I can tell a good joke after that. Those butterflies had to go away pretty fast when you walked out there because, I yeah. mean, that's about as big a hug as you can get from an audience when you walked on that stage. It's huge. And it's one of those things you can't, you try not to always, even almost with any crowd, even with a small crowd still to this day, I, I still kind of like, put them in smaller sections like in my head mm-hmm. I compartmentalize them and so that you don't look at the magnitude of it all at once you know maybe again like once you get rolling and you can hear the laughter then you can kind of absorb the whole thing but for the most part I like to I like to keep it to that front little corridor of people and everybody else in the back are just you know they're, they're shadows I do live events but I don't do crowds bigger than 10 or 12,000 but i pick out a group I can make eye contact with. Yeah. And if they're following me, I know I got them. Yeah, that's kind of it. Because right, you started you started to try to identify with 40,000 people and you know, people way up in the stands, you know, you 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 do that at that point that you have them in the hand, you kind of give that wave and make sure that they understand that you recognize they're in the building and that's a different connection. Yeah. But but when you when you're first trying to talk to them, I you I I use that same kind of analogy. The people that I can kind of see, I try to get them to to gauge. And I would do that too. Like if I got one side of the room laughing more than the other, I'll lean toward that side because laughter is also contagious. It is. Like once the people start to laugh, they might even know what's funny, but they'll hear somebody else laugh and they'll start to laugh with them and then it just kind of catches on. So, yeah. But I, that's something I had to learn too because you – you know, you would you would go out and always want to fight against you know the hardest battle. Like these people are laughing, I'm gonna go against the steel wall and just beat my head into yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Until, I'm gonna ride the river. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna go back and do some rafting over here, like yeah. kick back. Yeah. Tell me about Barbershop, because that is one of the favorite characters I've ever seen you play, but it was kind of controversial, right? Yeah, we did went into some controversy with that. That was a fun, you know, Barbershop was one of those things, too, when you, um, you know, in your career, I was trying to tell some, like, some young students this not long ago, is that you make choices in your career based off what it is that you really believe um in right because I had an opportunity to do a bigger movie for more money at that at the same time but Barbershop the character was somebody that rang and resonated truer to me and so I was like I just I turned down the money to go for the the, the better idea which may in, eventually made more money so um, I was really really blessed because that character was just you know, it was it was such a, a personal kind of story at the time that to go inside the barbershop to be able to kind of tell that story the way that they wanted to do it was so specific to the barbershops that, you know, I grew up in and was a part of all my life. This, this space where people just had the freedom to say what they want to say and talk and yeah. you can you don't have to you don't have to be politically correct. You know, you know, you just you don't you don't have to say it right. 
<laughs> the words could come out all wrong. People, I know what you're talking about. You know what I mean, right? That's what I mean. Okay, I got it. But you know, so so that that kind of that kind of thing was, uh, and so that role. And then I had this idea that I wanted to look like Frederick Douglass. So I remember I started growing my hair for that, uh, and so I would get my hair braided, and then my my wife took she taught me how to twist it, so I would twist it up. I remember we went, uh, I was growing my hair for that, and we went down to uh, Mexico on vacation. I used to have these rubber bands in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I didn't know I got in the water, and my hair expanded, and the rubber bands started popping. (laughs) And I didn't know what was going on, but it was scaring me because it was like, pop. You know, I would just be ducking. Everybody like, what's wrong with you? And then my wife was like, your rubber bands are busting, so. But uh, but I remember that 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 surprised everybody when I showed up with that character with the hair had the whole idea of what he sounded like and um, it was just one of the it was one of my favorite roles to do because you know an in, in, uh, old uh, old black man can just say whatever he wants to say that's what I'm saying you know what you gonna do the first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. What was the controversy? So the controversy came in, you know, that, uh, again, it's the barbershop, and they wanted to, they had a subject matter, of course, in there where uh, it was the it was the Rosa Parks thing about she just, you know, just she just sat down and uh, sat her ass down, and then uh, Martin Luther King being a freak, right? And so all the civil rights people were really upset that, you know that we kind of uh, what they what they felt was take away the veil of you know the these uh, iconic characters and so you know in in the in the script it was written in a way that I thought was I understood what the writer was trying to do he was he wanted to do something that was controversial like that that kind of like you know uh, made people feel a certain way but um, it was I thought I thought in the script it was written a little more distasteful and so I just did it my way the same thing that he wanted to do and I got a lot of I had a lot of um, leeway to improv on that movie because once because once I started doing the character uh, the director was like hey man this is incredible like I didn't I don't even I had no idea like this was gonna happen so I would improv a lot of my jokes and stuff and so in that in that I remember it was a big fight the producers. Nobody wanted me to say it. Nobody wanted it to be, uh, you know, people. I was like, dude, I don't have no problem with this. I think that this guy, this old man has seen it all. And that's basically all he's saying. I'm not I'm not saying it. And, like, you know, we cleaned it up. I said, I'm not saying that Rosa Parks didn't be, deserve credit. He's just saying other people sat down before her and they got beat up. And they got, especially the men, they got beat up. They got sent to jail. And he was friends with some of these people. And so... It's like, that's the point. It's like, you can't make somebody go like, oh, like Jackie Robinson was the only one to play baseball first. No, it was other people that, you know, that he was the first one that we all know, but it was other people that didn't get that that same chance that was good enough to play, you know. So there was controversy, but it still was a positive thing for you, right? 
I mean, you love that character. You yeah. love the role. Yeah, I love that character. It was it was one of those things where it was kind of you know, but it was kind of weird because I was getting phone calls like you know at my really? house, like Jesse Jackson called, <laughs> Al Sharpton called, uh, Rosa Parks family called. It was and then like uh, when I was I was gonna go to Atlanta at one time. Uh, I think Andrew Young called me. It was it was serious. Like people wanted. They wanted some explanation. And I was like, one guy's is a character in a movie. It's not me. <laughs> I don't know. You mad? <laughs> like, yeah. like when they yelled cut, I was done with it. <laughs> yeah, here, call Eddie. I mean, I'm at, yeah, call Eddie. Me, I'm at craft service. <laughs> I'm over here by the snacks. I don't know what you, what you want from me. You know, but, but then, uh, but uh, I think that, you know, like, it, but, you know, like, all kind of controversy at the time. It 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 makes you newsworthy. People kind of dig into it. And long as and like again, long as I didn't feel like I was like being a jerk about it. Not and, and I was empathetic to people. You know, yeah. Like you know, I was you know, especially like Rosa Parks family. Like I was I was empathetic to the, the what they would what they felt they thought they heard and I and I had to let them know you didn't hear that like what you didn't hear was me diss her I just said something uh, other than what people like to consider well plus the context of the storyline was other people in the movie were throwing the bull flag on Eddie for saying that so right. there was a balancing force in the movie yeah. that was saying oh come, you don't know I mean yeah. it wasn't like everybody said yeah let's dogpile her right exactly I mean there were people that were saying no 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 you don't know what you're talking about and, and that's the thing that, and that's also really the context in which the barbershop operates and that's what we were really at the ultimate of what this story was trying to say is that it, it's people in this barbershop with dissenting opinions about so many things that you would be surprised. Yeah. That you would be surprised the guys that are Trumpers in a barbershop that, that get everything Donald Trump do. You'd be like, what? You'll be mad. You'll think we all the one people, but no, we're not. And that's the place where you find out, like, we're not all one one kind of easygoing group of folks. Well, I spent my summers in the thriving metropolis of Mundy, Texas, M-U-N-D-A-Y, oh, no. which had uh, anywhere between 2,000 and 5,000 people in it. It was small. I don't think they even listed the number. I think they just put everybody's name on the sign when you pulled into town. And they had a barbershop like that where people went and hung around and they just talked all day and everybody had opinions and not a thing to back them up, but everybody right. had opinions. Right, that's right. And I mean, even young kids, we get in there and listen to these guys talk and we come away with these distorted opinions of the world. Then you go to school and repeat some of that stuff. They look at you like you're insane. And and that's like, you know, like in anybody that has the ability to really kind of like make their point seem like it's legit yeah. with one or two small facts. Yeah. You're right. You 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 down the street believe in every word they say. Every word. And then you go repeat it and somebody will go, You're oh like, my That's God. That's not true. Yeah. Tell me about Bernie Mac. I got to know Bernie yeah. some and I did his show. Remember he used to have that thing at the end of the show where he'd sit and just talk to somebody. Oh uh, yeah. I did that with him on his show and oh, then awesome. we got to talk and, and have some good times. You were a friend of his. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the guys, you know, when I first started, um, you know, it was again, it was a few people that were just really known. They were very, um, they were, you know, they were what we call 
hood famous. They were known already before they were like naturally famous. Everybody knew them. And Bernie Mac as a comedian, you know, coming out of Chicago, he was legendary. And I remember when I first went to go do Def Comedy Jam in uh, New York, he took me to lunch. And he was like, yo, I heard about you, boom, boom, with the lunch. And he was just, you know, he was, you know, he was like, he always, he's a solid dude. He was, he believed, um, you know, in the power of self. And he was like really driven and, you know, extremely funny, like just free, free funny. We would, we would talk about that, like uh, we call it uh, uh, letting go of the handlebars where, you know, Bernie at some point in time, he's just going to. There's gonna be no material. You don't know what's gonna come out of his mouth. Yeah. He's just gonna go and and it's usually just crazy genius, like whatever comes out. But he's so like just you know just free to let it come out. Let the words fly. That was a tragic loss, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, and he had um you know, he had that 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 the disease, the lung disease, and it was one of those things that I remember we were trying to do the tour again, and I would, you know, I was kind of always the guy that tried to keep everybody together, and so I called him, and and he was willing to go as long as we were on the bus. He didn't explain it at the time, but then I realized that he, you know, the oxygen he needed to be able to be able to control his breathing, and so yeah, he couldn't fly. Yeah, so that was, uh, uh, and then just shortly after that, that was really fast, and so. Yeah, extremely tragic, and you know, like you said, he was a guy that you felt was really still early on in the heights in which he could have really oh, gone. Yeah. I don't think, you know, even with the success of the TV show and you know doing in the oceans movies and all those kind of things, he still hadn't quite hit that level where you go like Bernie Mac's gonna be one of the great ones. Did everybody still get is. along on the Kings of Comedy? Yeah, you know, we had moments again. For me, I got along with everybody. I probably was the easiest one, but you know, Stephen Burning had a little little thing at a time. But they were the, they were the main ones because they just they had those both those big personalities and stuff. But Dio was always a guy that was kind of off to himself and do do his own thing. And then so was I. Like I was like I just kind of like you know piled around with everybody, and there never was any like thing where I was concerned about the next person that much. And so I think, but uh, they had their own little riff. I don't even know what it was, what, what it was. They eventually got it together, but that was the only one. I remember it was a big article in GQ and it was stuff in there that I was finding out. I was like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> now you read an article about your own friends. I'm like, really? I had to call Steve like, man, what that happened? You were there and didn't know it. I, I, I didn't know y'all was mad. That was happening. <laughs> oh, so that's how we start doing our own limos? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, we used to fly on the plane together. And then everybody started flying separately. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. Well, man, when, you know, but, you know, that's the thing. About, I mean, you do a lot of, you know, kind of conflict mediation. with, And people are, are, are like that. I think that... You know, you know, with me, I've always, even in this business, I've always tried to stay kind of, you know, I got my same group of people I started with high school with, you know, they, they work with me, they've all grown, you know, my, my family unit, I don't, I don't really, I'm, I, I got friends, I'm friends with people, but I'm probably say I'm friendly 
with people and don't and they still don't have a large group of like, hey, I want to be hanging with the it group, you know, kind of hanging out with the in crowd. Yeah, you say there's a small group of people you're close to, your wife, your kids, your manager who yeah. you've known forever, right? Yeah, 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 since uh, my freshman year. And then a handful of people just outside of that. Are you kind of a loner in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. It's 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 a uh, it's social friendships, like I, because I can get I can gain a friend really easily. Like my my wife always jokes about me because like if I go on vacation and I meet somebody at the bar, just kind of hanging on, I'd be like, "Hey, babe, it was my friend," you know. But but then it's like kind of socially for that moment. Yeah. Like I mean, like I feel bad for them because if I saw them next year, I'd be like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> Right. Yeah. We, we, we had the tacos, right? Yeah. I, th- I think I remember. Listen, you wrote this book, and this was a very interesting read for me, but I had to have some translation help oh. with some of this. <laughs> and what I'm talking about, for people who listen to this on audio, and he did not even ask me to mention this book. <laughs> it's not why we're talking here, but it's Cedric the Entertainer, Grown <laughs> Man. And I have to tell you, if you haven't seen this book, you need to order this book right now. And is there an audio version of this? I don't know. I don't think so. I was I had planned on doing it myself. I, you I need to do to an do audio version of oh, this. Oh, that would kill. And yeah. then you need to do a glossary. Oh, all oh, right. With the wood. <laughs> so, <laughs> Give me something, man. I don't even. I thought it was easy. I thought it was very easy. Okay, explain hookup. Oh, so, oh, this the hookup. So this this is the hookup. That that's the one where you know whenever you want something for free, this is the idea of you know people would say you know, Doctor Phil, man, you know I wanna I wanna come by your show and uh, you know and I, you know I saw you driving that Bentley, man, you know I want one else. You got the hookup on it, like you, <laughs> so this is like the hookup is like they want you to use your sources. To, to get you something easy, let me do it. Okay, the easiest, the all right. Up, man. Well, that, well, okay, that makes sense. That yeah, makes sense. Right, man. So hook me up, right? Yeah, you yeah. Got a, like, you got a deal. You got some, yeah, you know somebody that can do it. Yeah, so that's so, the hookup. Yeah, give that to me. Yeah, for nothing. Like what you've earned. Yeah. <laughs> you hook me up with the thing that it took you years to get. Yeah, but that's okay. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what friends are for, right? We always we always want the hookup, man. It's an easy situation. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a chapter in this book, guys, called Get Your Freak On. <laughs> and uh, you're very candid in this book. You rat yourself out pretty much in here. You talk about the first time you were trying to get um, intimate okay, with a girl, and you say your sister walked in and busted oh, you. Oh, yeah. I was, in, I was in the garage. you know, Very the romantic. Car, what you mean? <laughs> All girls love a good garage story, and uh, but I mean, you like you know you you teenage, you're just looking for any private place you could get, you know. Lorna, how did you ever connect with this guy? She was way after the garage days. Yeah, I hope so. She was like that, but I, it was bikes in there, and you know, bags of clothes, which you know can be a very Nice place, you know, with bags of clothes. Let's so see. your sister walked in. And my sister came in to get something out of all the times. She actually came in the garage to get something, and we were in there trying to, had to, you know, pull up the clothes and yeah. close, put the foot on the door. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. 
Well, you say your second try, your mother came in. Oh, man. I, I you remember that? I don't remember this one. Well, oh, now, here, mom? I'll go through it with you. Oh, Dr. Phil. You say your second try was interrupted when your mother came home and you tried to act like nothing happened, but you had your pants on backwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was and was breathing extra hard. And my mother was very gracious. She didn't. She didn't like embarrass the girl or anything. She just told me to come in for a second. What? What? What are you doing in my house? I said, "What? No, we just was chilling. We watching TV. Your pants are on backwards." <laughs> oh, oh, that's you know you're in trouble when your only re- response is oh, and yeah. So I got into trouble after that one though. But that was. Uh, that was oh man, I didn't so I didn't have really good luck at it. it, it no, apparently old, not. Man. That took a while for me to get my my groove right. Yeah, when you put your pants on backwards, you apparently were in a hurry. Well, yeah, because you were just trying to get. It. I heard the car pulling up, and you just trying to make it happen, man. You just trying to make sure you look normal when she come in the house. Yeah, that's why I say you guys have got to read this book. <laughs> you said you weren't an athlete; you were a nerd, and. You took the SATs to go to college, and you thought it was easy till you saw the first question. <laughs> well, you know, did you prepare, or did you just show up? I thought that I knew what I was doing, yeah. But I probably, a lot like my son is today, believed that whatever this in my head as knowledge is is all the knowledge that I need. Yeah, right. And so I don't think I was quite prepared for a real SAT question. <laughs> about a train going to Chicago at a certain amount of speed. Like, why would you take a train? Take a plane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let me rewrite this question. Yeah, let me tell you, like, don't be on a train, first of all. Now, you worked as an undercover security guard? Oh, what man. What is that, that job? It. What do you so, do? So, I was at Sears. Right. And you look like a regular person. So, you walk around... In, in like kind of undercover clothing. You look like your regular guy just like just hanging out and you you look for people. Well, what do you do when your friends come in and say, hook me up? See, that's when you couldn't do that on those. That's not a job you do the hookup on because, you know, they're watching you. But you They're know, watching you. Yeah, they're watching me. I did see a dude walk out with a lawnmower one time. You know, just, <laughs> and it was just so, go- it was so gangster that I just let him go. I mean, I was like, how bold are you gonna be like he just walked up and walked behind the lawnmower Pushed and just started out. walking out the store with it like it was like nothing and i was like this dude really he really <laughs> he just let him go i said that's the boldest move i ever seen in my life like i never this dude walked in and took a lawnmower out of sears and was like going on man it's like he got away with it yeah they, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't stop him. I think I, you know, I probably got fired shortly after that. Yeah. You know, like, him. but I tried to act like I didn't notice it. You know, at the time. Well, it's pretty bold. I like boldness. But you'd get away with something like that. Who would think you would do that? That's the that was the thing. That's what I was like. Nobody. I mean, I, that's why I think I'm because I'm like undercover security. I'm like the second level of security. It's the other security guards. That's, the, that's their main job. I'm like, y'all didn't see it either. Like that dude walked out with that lawnmower. 
you said you were the one they would come get when they had irate black people in the store because you had to be the translator. Oh, what yeah. does that mean? That was that. that I was uh, what I, I always care. I, I, I spoke. I was bilingual. I spoke regular regular English and angry Negro. Black 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 people when they get mad, it's these threats that they give out that you know that will scare the average person and so. But it's like, uh, go get said because they I think they. They're using their angry Negro on us right now. And they're like, I used to say that, I'll blow this building up. Y'all don't want none of this. I'll blow this building. I said, look, calm down, everybody. Black people can't get dynamite, okay? <laughs> you got to listen to the context of the words. There's no way this brother can go anywhere and get dynamite. So he's, he's not blowing up anything. Let me talk to him. He's just mad. <laughs> so that ain't gonna happen, right? Yeah, it's not gonna happen. But if you hear it, you sound like a real threat. Like it's not gonna happen. So you know, uh, yeah, people would be upset, man, and all, all that. And I, and I had a friend that had he would come in the Sears and that because I would get those credit cards too, like the little. And one of my friends, and he would come in, and it was just Sears was supposed to be for small things. Right, and my my, and I remember years later, this guy started working for me, and he wanted a an advance because he had <laughs> he had this debt at Sears, and I was like, "What you a debt at Sears? What's going on?" He's like, "Remember, when I used to get them credit cards for you, man. Like I owe like six thousand dollars to Sears. Sears? I said, do you all have a refrigerator, a washing dryer? Now, what were you getting at Sears where you ran up six thousand dollars stuff?" But all that little jewelry, and he would just buy the rings and a, a bunch of clothes, and he just he just ran up the number over years. Well, I thought it was fun that you worked at Sears because I had a job at Sears, and I was in the shipping department. You know, people make catalog orders, and they come and pick them up. Oh, and yeah. I'd take them out to their car, and I did get fired because I <laughs> could never get the tickets right, and I was putting the wrong the wrong car and the oh, people yeah. get home and they'd have the wrong stuff and it was a Christmas time and they would come back Be and mad, yeah. their daughter wanted a doll and she had a blender and <laughs> they'd come back and be pissed off. They always had my initials on the bottom of it and it took them about a week to figure that out and I didn't have a job. <laughs> I had really moved up to go to Sears because I'd been working at A&W Root Beer Stand. Oh, nice. Yeah. I was doing well until they put us on skates. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. I look like a newborn deer on a frozen pond. They put us on skates. I mean, there were cheeseburgers and yeah. stuff rolling across the highway. Yeah, the root beer floats everywhere. Oh, my God. Really. I swear, I was throwing stuff on people's hoods. I got fired there, so I went to Sears, but it didn't last very long. So, you know, what are you going to do? Now, you have to explain something to me. You said you started being careful with your money, but you couldn't resist buying a $4,000 Rolex. Oh, yeah. You said there's a difference from being a success and a sellout in the black community. That's so true, though, man. Like, you got to, because you got to floss. Now, you're supposed to save, but you have to floss. What the hell is floss? So, so See, you got to. So, so, that, so that's the why you need a glossary in the back of this book. That's what I'm saying, man. So, you, you, you can save. So you're successful, right? You make a little money, you yeah. know. But then you got to show people that you got some money. Otherwise, 
that's you would be you would be selling out if I didn't come in and rock the big Rolex sometimes, right? That's why black people always got diamonds and chains because I gotta let you know. Now I'm not gonna throw it in your face, right? But you gotta know that I got it. So okay, and then that's so that's the difference. Like people who don't don't spend their money and show it off, you know, they're kind of you know that's kind of selloutish, man. When you don't. Well, you're not really flossing and letting the, you know, letting the hood know that you're, you see. Is this flossing? You're flossing right now. That's the Daytona. Yeah, uh, it's a rose gold Rolex. I guess yeah. I don't know which one it yeah, is. Yeah, I think that's the rose gold. What do you got on here? I was I was admiring this when you came in. This is the Shinola. See, this is a this is totally different. This is that's this a the, good looking watch, good watch you got though. on. This is one of the. This is these guys. They were out of Detroit and they started making a watch to kind of compete with the other people. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great watch. It's a uh, Shinola. That's the you know. In the, that's the, a forty-four millimeter though. Yeah. See? I have a big arm, so I like a big dial. Yeah. That's a forty-four millimeter. This is a forty-two. 42 that's yeah. a forty-four. Yeah, this watch is probably though. Know, but this you know this watch is it's affordable. This this watch is probably eight hundred bucks. It's a good-looking watch. Yeah, and it, it looks good, and it, it goes with the tracksuit. Yeah, tracksuit day. Man. That's your tracksuit watch. Yeah, yeah, he's a tracksuit watch man. So yeah. that's good. I have no idea what watches cost because my wife buys them and puts them in my closet. Oh, see that, but that's beautiful. That watch is this isn't eight hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's little bit more than eight hundred. Oh, that's flossing day, Doctor Phil, and and because he's got his sleeves rolled up so you can see it, that's the extra floss. So the thing is, is like, because he can all easily have his sleeves rolled down and you would never know the watch was on. But when you roll it up just enough. Well, this is my casual well, look for podcasting. Oh, nice. I see. It's got a, it's a yeah, you got a swag to it too, man. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, so. Yeah, they don't know that about him right there. I know. I see them one day riding down the street like in a Ferrari with the drop top. And I said, Dr. Phil. <laughs> Come, you too L.A. right now. It was too L.A. I was like, Dr. Phil, get to drive the businessman, uh, be in the businessman's Mercedes. It's simple. I have a businessman's car. I've got a Rolls Royce Wraith. And it's See, all blacked so out. so simple. You good, you good for the hood, man, man. So you, this is exactly what I'm talking about. See, it, it's it, all blacked out it, with 22s on it. Yeah, it's, it's very businessman. It's got white interiors, black on the outside. Yeah, it's a little something to get from here to there. I pull up, open the door, and everybody's expecting two chains or Snoop to get out. <laughs> right. And then it's Grandpa Doctor <laughs> Phil. And everybody goes, "Oh shit, never mind." <laughs> the swag move right there. I like it. Yeah, that's like once a year, maybe. So you save your money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got a financial planner? I do I do? I got you know a couple good couple good people been with me for many years. You know, financial guys that we try to come up with. You know, the idea of uh, you know looking at you know the proper investments and just saving in, in general. My wife's really good at that. You know, she's. She's one of those. She's one of those people that we spend what we need to spend, and that's. And for the most part, we live our lives just kind of like you know, not overdoing it. But you know, we'll we'll, we'll get those extras if we want them. You know, but it's not necessary. Yeah. Well, you say Oprah doesn't need a financial planner. What do you? <laughs> yeah, oh, Oprah just got. She just got the Oprah money. You know, you just. <laughs> she just got the Oprah money. Where you just don't. You just plan just to. You say it. 
you know, like I want to think about saving, but I don't know, Oprah, just buy another jet. So your wife dispends what you need. Sometimes. So Lorna, would you spend time with my wife? Because <laughs> my wife spends what she's got. Yeah. Oh, so it's the whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. I put it this way. Oprah came to our house. She comes over all the time. She came to the house two years ago. She walked through and said, I am not living large enough. And she went home <laughs> and gutted her house for two years to redo it. Because, yeah, she yeah. she had just seen stuff in there. That yeah, was she like, walked through and said, I'm not living large enough. I got to keep up with Robin. And I thought, <laughs> got to oh, turn God. it up. The very first time that Robin and Oprah met, this was back when I was defending her up in Amarillo. I was still living in Dallas. And she flew into Dallas with me from Amarillo. First time she and Robin met, they get in a limo. They're pulling out of my circle drive. And Oprah leans out the window and yells at me, we're going to spend money like it was invented last night. <laughs> now, let me tell you, when your wife is pulling away with Oprah and she's saying, we're going to spend money like it was invented last night, you get this sick feeling in the like, pit of your stomach. Oh, man. Oh, God. Yeah, it's going to go man. deep. This is going to be bad. It was only, you know, like when we were doing the house, that's now, that's when it can get expensive. Like, yeah, I remember when we were doing our house, I would actually have tours that were named after things that I had to do. Like, it'd be like, oh, so she want to do these, you know, these uh, Italian handcrafted chandeliers. Oh, uh, let me, let me book the chandelier tour. <laughs> When I would just show up in the town, they'd be like, why are you here again? Said, oh, chandeliers and light fixtures. That's where you get up close and personal with the three most expensive words in the English language. Might as well. <laughs> might as well. You're building a house. You think we should put it? Yeah, might, might as, as well. well. Think we ought to add this? Might as well. How about putting two chandeliers? Might as well. Might as well. You know, and, and it's always better looking at it than looking for it. That's right. So it's just like adding stuff to it. Oh, and and then uh, and of course that's a contractor's dream. They all like, yes. oh, they love those changes. Yeah, they they all oh, change orders. Yo, change the, orders. Change Give orders. Me change the order move here. It costs more than the house. Yeah, yeah, that's the move right there. Yeah. They, they, I think they sell you the smaller ideas so they can yeah. do change orders. Yeah, we're gonna move time. this door six inches. It costs you three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been but through. You're that. gonna love it. Yeah, you're gonna <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna the function. It makes the house. It, it does. It, it just it, makes it's the There's no way you can do it the way the door is now. The last thing you got to explain to me out of this book, now I want you to be more test on your own book, <laughs> but <laughs> you said that you don't understand racism, that the common denominator between white people and black people is ribs. <laughs> ribs? Barbecue, man. I got to agree with you on that. Barbecue is one of these things, I mean, you know, of course... You you know, you're a Texas guy, so, you know. That's why I say you, I get the ribs. People get, you know, they got, you know, you get the regions about it. Like some people go, well, Memphis is this, Missouri is that, but Texas. But at the core of it, that idea of grilling meat, getting it right, getting that sauce on there, we can all find common ground. That's right. It's a place somewhere in the middle of there where everybody goes, you know what? It's, that's all right. That's all, that's all right right there. Yeah, if it ain't dripping Why off your elbows, if it's not dripping off your elbows, it's not right. 
everybody can bond over ribs. Yeah, it's a it's an opportunity where we can just let it all go, right? Yeah. And sit there and get our fingers messy and, you know, watch try to not to get none on your outfit. That's the whole mood. I'm trying to eat ribs like I'm standing on a like I got on all white at a Christmas party. Seriously, I was in Dallas the other day and I had a guy say, You wanna go get some ribs for lunch? I said, What do you gotta ask? And he takes me into the lobby of a bank building. I said, you can't get ribs in the lobby of a bank building. There's no rib joint in the lobby of a bank building. I took him to a place where they open and close when they run out of ribs. Yeah, yeah, that's what Sonny you're Bryan's. talking about, right. Sonny Bryan's in <laughs> oh, Dallas. Yeah, you've probably yeah, been there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, they close when they run out of ribs. There's no clock. They just close when they run yeah, out of ribs. Yeah, we done. We, you pull up and you're like, yo, let me get, the, let me get a couple of those tips. Yeah, get a rib tip there. Hey, we, hey, we, we out. Yeah, sorry. They tell you what they got left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they going to close after that. Uh, I tell you what, what we got left. Are you as happy and fulfilled in your life as you seem? Yes, yes, yes. Because I see you around, and I hardly ever see you, whether it's at dinner or driving or somewhere, that you don't have a smile on your face or just seem at peace yeah man i feel really blessed you know i think that uh i i i I find contentment in you know the opportunities that are in front of me you know and i feel like really blessed of course to have have done some of the the things that that i you know have in my career but you know great wife great kids you know, try to keep it really simple. I don't really desire to be the richest or the, you know, the funniest dude in the business. I just, I like doing my job. I like going up. And so I find, um, I find great contentment in that. And so I, you know, that, that's easy for me to like just kind of be in a good mood and, you know, and, and find great joy. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I'm never really looking for something that I don't feel like I don't have. And so that's when I feel like people get all often upset and, want to blame others and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, I mean, I, I feel really blessed. I do homework for this. Of course, I know you and Steve and I are great friends, and he's talked about you so much. But I do homework, and I listen to interviews and stuff. And I always hear you talk with such admiration about your wife, Lorna, who's here today. We've talked to her. She's off camera and mic over here. You always talk about her with such great warmth and admiration which i respect greatly and you have three children yeah are they all good things going well yeah yeah you know we i got uh i got an older daughter and she's 29 and now i got a new grandbaby that's two yeah yeah right. so she's got a grandbaby and, and she's got a daughter no kylo uh-huh. so that's my grandbaby she's right Two will be three in May, uh, uh, June, and so. Congratulations and then, uh, on that! And then uh, um, our our oldest, uh, Lauren and I, we have our, our son Croig's eighteen. Right. He's uh, doing a gap year, so he's been studying all over all over the world, doing all kinds of cool stuff. He's actually in London right now, studying acting. It's great. It's great. And then uh, our youngest, uh, Lucky Rose, she turned fifteen. Um, the other day, and so she's again another amazing kid that uh, just really blessed. They got they got great personalities. They you know they they work hard. They're u- uniquely independent, and so uh, uh, you know just it was really a blessing, man. Everybody's happy, thriving, yeah. 
beautiful wife yeah, doing what you love to do. I mean, yeah. how much better can it get, right? Happy wife, happy life. That's, what That's right. Said, you know? Well, man, thank you for taking the time to come sit down and talk to me. Yeah, man. This has been fun. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.